Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Eric O'Connell. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning we get to continue through our sermon series through First Chronicles, uh, where we're looking at real hope for rough times. And uh, this morning we're going to focus our time on First Chronicles 11, primarily. Um, and it's going to be a story, a really interesting story, uh, and it's going to be towards the end, and there's a specific reason for that, uh, of David, his mighty men in a cave with some water. Um, but, but really what the Chronicle wants us to show is what true faithfulness in serving the true king looks like. Like and, and doing so, um, again, while we're going to focus on our story towards the end, is because the chronicler in this chapter also paints a much bigger picture in which we find the significance of this really unique story about them in the cave and with some water. And in order to illustrate that, uh, if you will entertain me for just a moment, I uh, always like to have an excuse to put my daughter up on uh, screen. But uh, one of the things about me and my personal life is I love to cook. I uh, come from a long line of people who like to cook. I uh, My favorite uh, class in high school was foods class. That might tell you a lot about me. Um, and I am not above like every six to eight weeks bringing home some weird kitchen gadget that I found online or at Meyer and drive my wife nuts because um, I want to make a new recipe. And so the last time I did that, I got a potato ricer because I wanted to make hash browns. I'm the type of person that don't necessarily like to eat at breakfast places because I'm arrogant enough to think that I can make it better. So I was like, you know what? I want to get hash browns. I want to start making those. And so I brought that home and uh, started making them. And one of the traditions we've had at our house now that I have two daughters is love to cook for our entire family on Saturday mornings. And uh, one thing that overjoys my heart is uh, this little one has taken a huge liking to helping daddy cook in the kitchen. Um, now, one of the, the two things that Kaya loves to do the most is to help daddy make hash browns and eggs. Okay. Um, now, here's the thing. Being two and a half, she's not much help. Don't tell her that when you see her. It's really actually more of a distraction. And uh, I have to now focus on not burning the bacon and her hand and making sure she doesn't fall, on that, fall off that chair. Um, but I'll tell you what. If you're at my house on Saturday morning, one of her favorite things to do is to take an egg. Dad has the egg, but she puts her hand over mine and she says, three, two, one, I crack it. And then when I put it in that bowl, if you're outside my house and the door is open, you and the rest of my neighbors will hear a gleeful shout of, yay, eggs, Kaya made them. And, and you know what? I, I don't have the heart to say, no, you didn't. But, but two things can be true in that moment, right? For her, it's a real experience. She really thinks she's making eggs with dad. Now, it would be really irresponsible for me to then feed her those eggs or the rest of our family, and it wouldn't taste good. But also, I think what would be uh, irresponsible is for me to say, just get out of here. Get out. I, I need him. If you let daddy make dinner or breakfast really quick, you'll get to enjoy it. Um, no, she wants to spend time with me, and I'll always take that. But there's, a, there's a something about cooking that she's actually uh, drawn to. And, and I want to walk alongside that with her and hopefully uh, help her say, hey, Kaya, if you keep doing this, guess what? You'll get to make eggs with daddy. You get to make eggs for daddy. That's what I'm really excited for. Um, but I tell you that story because, you know, it's important, you know, every single Saturday at one point, I'll look over to Kaya and I'll say, you know what, sweetie, one day when you're bigger, you're going to get to make hash browns and eggs for daddy. Now, she doesn't know what I'm doing here, but then she'll look at me and go, cool, dad. You know, she'll, she gets excited about it. And I don't know if she'll like to cook as much as I do. Maybe she just likes to make a mess in the kitchen. But, but for me, if I want to see her, you know, cook with me and for me, um, I need to cast a vision for the future for her of how cool this could look like, what the finished product could look like. And it's important to do that, to cast a vision for the future. And, and especially as, as I cast that vision, I want to walk alongside her. I want to see her mess up the world's simplest recipes. I want to see her have to learn the difference between butter and margin and, 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 and do all the 
the skills, right? And I want to walk alongside, but it starts with saying, guess what, Kaya? One day, if you stick with it, you work hard, this is what it's going to look like. You get to make the eggs. You get to make the hash browns. You don't need daddy's hand. You gotta, and I would say that we need to do that for pretty much anything that's important in our life, is start by saying, what could the end product look like through hard work, perseverance, and sacrifice? So I share that story to not only show you a picture of my daughter, but to share that this it might seem like a stretch, but this is kind of what the Chronicler is doing in this chapter. All right? the, the Chronicler is speaking, um, he's casting a vision of the future to his people that are in exile. Right? They are, they're without hope, they're without guidance, uh, they're no longer the big dogs, they've been knocked down a peg, um, and they're just kind of lost. And in the last chapter Ron talked to us about in uh, chapter 10, that was really sort of a case study in, in what not to do. And Saul was our leader there, right? Look at the life of Saul, how he reigned, and we can see that that was just an example of un unfaithfulness. And the reason why it was an example of what not to do is because he was fearful. And being fearful, he, he didn't obey the Lord. What the Lord commanded him to do, obey, or uh, directed him to do, he did it his own way. And as a result, uh, God took the kingship away from him, his presence and his blessing, and gave it to David. And so we see a clear example of what not to do, what unfaithfulness looks like. But then in this chapter, what the Chronicler is going to do is completely shift his attention and focus on what to do, what real faithfulness looks like. Right, as these people are in exile, without hope, without guidance, looking for just a north star to be able to inspire, to show them this is the way we need to go. What the Chronicler wants, Chronicler wants to do in painting a vision for the future is look back in the past and say David is the example of what to do. Specifically, David, as he rose to true king and as he established his kingdom, that's what we need to look at. The Chronicler, if you were able to talk to his audience today, I think what he would say is the issue that we have is ever since David has passed, there is a David-shaped hole in our country and in our people, in our collective heart, and we need to fill it. And the only way that we're able to fill that is if we go look and see what they did, how they acted, how they lived their faith out. And so what we see is he paints first the big, broad picture, right? There's in, the, in the first three verses, there's four things that stand out that's, that communicates to his audience, this is what we were doing when we thrived. When everything was great, when we obeyed God, this is what it looked like. And here's the first three verses. All of Israel came together. This is after Saul has died. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel as the Lord had promised through Samuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So he's saying, here's what it looked like, okay? Uh, as he casts a vision for the future, and as he kind of gives the big picture, here's what faithfulness looked like, four quick things. And what he's ultimately doing is he's contrasting Saul and David as king and how their reign affected the entirety of Israel. And so in 1 Chronicles 10, we see this is what it wasn't like, but in 11, this is when it was good. And the reason it was good is because unlike Saul, when David was our king, we all recognized oneness with him. We were in it together, right? All of Israel came together. No rebellions, no coups, no stuff happening in the background. All of Israel came together to one person person to one place and said, this is our guy. This David, he is our flesh, he is our blood, and we are going to follow him. He is our king, no questions asked. 
And and unlike Saul, David also proved himself able to lead Israel. First and foremost, when he went and took on Goliath. But but after that, they said, look, even while Saul was king, it was you, David. You were the one. You weren't delegating. You were getting into the battle. You were leading us. You showed us that you were a king worth fighting for. Uh, Unlike Saul, David was so much more than a king. This is probably my favorite part of these first three verses. uh, Because sometimes we, 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 we don't notice these things. But there's actually three titles given to David in this passage. And the first two is shepherd and ruler. And why that's significant is because they call him a shepherd and a ruler before they acknowledge him as king. And the reason being is because, again, they're in exile. The chronicler knows that anyone in exile isn't too fond of kings right now because they're kind of the reason they're there. And so he understands there's some harsh political overtones that come with calling him king. They weren't around when David was around, but he's saying, you guys, he was so much more than a king. But before he became a king, you know where Samuel found him? He was out in the fields and he was a shepherd laying his life down for sheep. He did it so well. He wasn't just a king who sat on a throne. He was a ruler, a true ruler. He did the hard work, and he did it well. Don't just call him a king. He was so much more than that. He was a shepherd and a ruler, and that's why he was fit to be king. So much more than a king. Don't just label him with Saul and the others. And then, unlike Saul, and this is the most important thing, David was completely obedient to God. And Israel recognized it. But when they actually come and anoint him king, they say that this all happened as the Lord had promised through Samuel. This all happened because we followed the direction that God took us in. And I think they were convinced of this because King David, I'm sure any chance he got, whether they were in the battlefield, in caves, around campfires, kept reminding them, any victory, any success we have, it's because we did what God told us to do. Not on our own might, not on our own wisdom. We followed where God told us to go. And so in painting this big picture of what the future could look like for them by looking in the past, the chronicler basically says... David succeeded where Saul failed because David was always seeking the Lord first. First and always. So, uh, already, get, right, we got this, this big, big picture vision. In these first three verses, here's four things that we can do to sort of get back to where we were, maybe find some hope for the future. Uh, we need to realize that we need to have oneness with our king. We need to be able to f- support and, and be devoted to a king that shows he's worthy of leading us. Uh, we need more than just a king, someone who cares for us in our hearts. And we need a, a leader to look to that shows us what obedience looks like in real time. Right? It, it, We are suffering right now, the chronicler would say to his audience, because we have forgotten these things. This is when we thrived, is when this is what defined us. And in order for us to get back to that, we have to return to this. Now, it was not lost on me as Ron was doing announcements. I totally forget when the 4th of July comes, and so I just want to make one quick quick note. Uh, This is not going to be a, hey, let's return to 1776 type sermon. All right, that's not what I'm trying to communicate at all. The chronicler had David. We have Christ. We have a much better vision for the future, and we'll return to that. But just wanted to calm any anxieties just in case. So, So what's happening here, right, is the chronicler has given us this picture. We can kind of tell what it is, sun, sky, and the sea. And for the rest of the chapter, he's going to start doing this. He's going to start putting some some rays, start putting some color into the sky, letting us see some differences. He's going to start putting some some definition and some depth of field in the waves so we don't just see these three colors, but we see this beautiful picture painted that inspires us. And he's going to do that through telling of military conquests, of, of, of great achievements by great men, and explaining who these type of men were and why they were important and why they should be remembered. 
And the first story that he shares is when David uh, went and captured Jebus and turned it into the city of David. David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites who lived there said to David, you will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. He mentions this place, Jebus, and it's the city of David. I've actually been there, and this is very true. The reason why this is significant is because where this place was located, very rocky terrain, steep valleys. If you occupied this place, especially with a fortress, you had very little concern that any invading forces were actually going to conquer you. Right? It was sort of out of sight, out of mind. But again, recognize the ease. The chronicler says, nevertheless, doesn't matter. They didn't even need to detail the fight. He just captured it. As if to say, this is what it looks like when, when we are obedient and when we follow the lead of a shepherd ruler king who takes his marching orders from God and God alone, we can be the underdogs and, 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 achieve victor- and emerge victorious. Not because of who we are, but because God himself will lead us to that victory. We need to remember that. And then we're introduced to one of, of many mighty men we're going to learn about this morning. And it's important to remember their stories as we get to our final story. We were first introduced to Joab. It says that David had said, whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. And Joab, son of Zariah, went up first, and so he received the command. And then David took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. He built up the city around it, from the terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city, and David became more and more powerful. And we've always got to remember this, because this is the through line for the chronicler. Because. Why? The Lord Almighty was with him. So we're introduced to Joab, right, his first mighty warrior. And maybe you're like me when you first read this story, if, if, and this is important for us to notice real quick, is, wait, didn't he do something bad? He wasn't a really good guy in Scripture, right? Like, he, he did something... The answer is yes. And we just need to get this off the table right now. Yes, he did. We're all bad. We're all sin. We're all flawed. We're all broken. Even David, who he's going to put as the epitome of perfection, he sinned. He's bad. We're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to ignore it. In fact... The chronicler would just say, hey, please, just for a little bit, don't focus on the bad. The bad's there. Go read Second Samuel. I promise you're going to learn all about the ways that these guys were messed up. But even though they messed up, they did get it right. They did get it right. And what the chronicler wants to focus our attention on is focus on when they got it right and what we can learn from them and how we can improve our lot today. And so what we see with Joab is when they go to Jebus and they conquer it and it becomes the city of David, David presents this bold ask. If any one of you can go hunt them down, track them down, and emerge victorious, you will be rewarded. And Joab responds right away, goes after them. He emerges victorious. David keeps his word, and he's rewarded with status and honor. And I think the really cool part about the story is not necessarily that he was victorious, but what we're told is afterwards they go to do the work of rebuilding the city, fortifying it, repairing it. Anyone who knows the human heart and politics and how well those mix, like oil and water, the fact that they were able to work together towards one common purpose and goal is inspiring. And, and, and it only comes with humility, and it only comes with first devoting ourselves to God and then devoting ourselves to the one God has called to lead us. Right? They worked selfishly in establishing David's kingdom. They all knew their role. They all knew their role, and it had nothing to do with necessarily politics, but first and foremost with God, following God and where he called them. So remember, remember Joab. Remember this example. 
as these people in exile are looking for hope and guidance, he's saying, you need to remember that when we thrived, we were obedient and we were supportive of a shepherd, ruler, king. Not him, but we were obedient to him because he took his marching orders from God. Didn't care about what others thought, their opinion. We did what God told us and he led that charge. Remember that. Remember Joab. Remember mighty men like Jashobim. A hack knight who was chief of officers, and he raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. Second uh, Samuel says that he actually killed 800 men. Um, 100 could also mean a military group. Doesn't matter. This guy knew his way around a spear. Um, and not only that, but he went into battle fearlessly, and he did so that he could keep not only himself, but his entire nation and his people, the king that he loved, safe. He was willing to pay the ultimate price so that his nation and his people could thrive under the leadership of this king who was under the service of God. Remember that. Remember those types of sacrifices. Remember this man. That's why he put him in there. One of David's inner circle, one of his three mighty warriors. Remember him. And remember Eleazar, son of Dodai, and I've practiced this like so many times. A Ahohite, I think it is. Could be wrong. I know Jebus is the right one. But remember Eleazar. And if you, if you can remember him, remember the battle that he was in with David and all of Israel. And when the battle turned and they thought they were going to lose and it felt like all hope was lost, there were so many other men that left and fleed and wouldn't trust in the Lord and left Eleazar and David to fight for themselves. And when they had to make the decision whether they were going to flee or not, what did they do? They, they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and they struck the Philistines down. And the Lord, again, that through line, the Lord brought them a great victory. Not themselves. They trusted in God. Remember Eleazar, because Eleazar didn't flee out of a sense of patriotism. He, flee, he remained in battle because of his faith and his unshaking confidence in God. His faith was able to extinguish that fear, and he was able to continue to trust that God was fighting alongside and for him. And as a result, his faith in God led him to victory, and it ultimately gave him honor. We're talking about him this morning, remembering Eleazar and what he did for the Lord. And the chronicler would want to say to his people, remember him. Remember what he did, and remember the hard times. When you're tempted to turn your back on one another and God, remember Eleazar, and remember that during the hard times, faith extinguishes fear. And God will carry us through if we can persevere in that faith. We, 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 God will see us through. Remember Eleazar. Remember men like Abishai and Benaiah that taught us what true humility and leadership looked like. Abishai was a great guy. He was the brother of Joab. And guess what? He also raised his spear against 300 men in battle. And just like Joshua Beam, guess what? He also was led to victory. But what's interesting about Abishai is that even though he did the same thing, he wasn't actually included in David's inner circle. No reason why, but you've got to imagine us in workplaces, if we do something great, just as great as someone else, thinking, oh, maybe I'll be part of the inner circle. But that didn't happen for, for Abishai. Again, we don't know why, but, but we do know that it didn't deter him from still following David. Uh, he, he led with humility, but, but he was still given status and honor. Maybe it wasn't what he wanted, or maybe it's not what we would think we would want, but look what the scripture says. He became as famous as David's inner circle. He was doubly honored above those men, and he became their commander, even though he wasn't included among them. So remember that. Remember that even when you have success, remember that even when you think that this is what is deserved and when you think that your great works have brought you something that you deserve, just remember that what we need from leaders 
and for, from each other in good times is to remember that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. Remember Abishai. He helped us show that in the way he lived his life. And so did Benaiah. Because if Abishai was great, guess what? Benaiah, this guy, he struck down two of Moab's mightiest, mightiest warriors. This guy killed a lion in the snow. All right? This guy went up against an Egyptian that he had no business going up against, defeated him with nothing but his club and his intellect. Right? This guy was a mighty warrior. In fact, he was so mighty that he too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He also was held in great honor than any of the 30. But again, he wasn't included among the three. But David put him in charge of his bodyguard. So again, remember, play your part. Do what you need to do. It's not just you. It's all of us, and we're all following God. Remember these men. Remember what they taught us. Remember how they lived their faith in action. And as the chronicler does, he wants us to remember a lot more people. He gives us 47 more names. Remember these guys. Remember them. I'm not going to go through all of them. Don't worry. But remember these men. If you need hope, what he would say to his, if you need hope, if we need a North Star, remember these men and their stories. Remember what they did, how they did it, how they defeated the impossible odds to their faith in God, how they fortified a city, installed a new government, and actually thrived and lived in harmony. Remember these men and their stories. And above all else, remember how they did it by seeking the Lord first, together, and always. That is what made them thrive. That is what made them successful. And and friends, again, what the Chronicler would say to his people is the reason that we are in the predicament we're in is because we, the beaten path that they blazed for us, we veered off of it. And if we want to see a way forward, we need to return back to that path. The Chronicler would say is that these men and their stories to his audience, they were the standard that we have to judge ourselves by. They're not perfect. Not trying to pretend they're perfect, but if we want to get anywhere close to what faithfulness looks like, we need to start by saying, are we doing what they did? Or are we at least getting it right like they did? Because if not, maybe we need to work a little bit harder. So that's the picture that he paints with all these men. This is the type of men they are. These are the type of exploits they went through. Uh, And with that picture painted, one of the first stories that he tells is our story this morning. And it'll it'll go fast, but it's it's a story that is so weird, to be honest, when I first read it. I was like, how am I going to preach on this? Um, But it's, it's, it's so beautiful and I think very instructive. And I think the chronicler, after he paints this beautiful sunrise, sunset picture, I forget which one that is, my bad. After he paints his beautiful, beautiful ocean picture. He says, now I want to show you just one little wave, what it looks like, what this looks like in action, and again, the type of heart and character that we need to return to. And it's found in verses 17 through 19, and this story takes place in the cave of Adullam. David is not the official king. He's a king in the eyes of God, but he's fleeing currently from Saul for his life. Uh, he's being pursued, going up on, down all these valleys, caves, blazing sun. Um, he's in enemy territory. Uh, Haddon Robinson says that at this point in David's life, he's uh, more fugitive and less king. Right? He's not in a very prosperous situation, but he's surrounded by these mighty men. And their character, even in the hard times, it shows just how much more impactful it must have been in the good times. Because they're in the cave, and we read this. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke the Philistin lines, drew water from the well near the gates of Bethlehem, carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. 
should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back to David, he wouldn't drink it. Didn't plan that. Um, it's a very strange story. Um, at, at first glance, uh, David kind of seems like an ungrateful jerk. Uh, right? they've, they've been traveling through enemy territory, blazing sun, and, and probably are just like, we're so exhausted, we've been on high alert, and they're resting in this cave. And David doesn't even really make a request. And in fact, I like to, to think that David was just sitting back, head on the rock, talking to his buddies and going, man, this was a hard day. We have just been, we've been in the sun, we've been walking in these rocks, and I'm so thankful for the water that we find because we die without it. Thank you, God, for that. But uh, you guys, you know what I miss? You guys remember that, that well near the gate of Bethlehem, the water from it? I miss that water. That would be good. All this, again, I'm so thankful God has sustained us, and I've been enjoying my time here with you guys, but man, if I could get some water from that well, that would be nice. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this longing before. Weirdly enough, I have. I grew up in Lake Tahoe, and uh, I was very ignorant to uh, how awesome my tap water was growing up. Um, the tap water that comes from Tahoe tap is like the stuff you can get at the store, but probably even better. Absolutely loved it. Thought that's how all tap water was. Until I moved to Los Angeles um, and went to school at Biola. And uh, being on the swim team, doing all the working out and everything, I'd go grab water from the tap and poof, I'm not even kidding. Some water bottles that I had looked a little bit like that. And I would complain to my room. I would complain to my, my, my floor mates, my teammates. Gosh, the tap water is not like it is here in Tahoe. And you know how many times my floor mates and my teammates drove up to Tahoe to get me a glass of water? About as many times as they probably thought about doing it. Zero. All right? That's not, not how it works. But that's how it worked for David and his mighty men. Right? As David is sitting there just daydreaming, oh, that water would be so awesome. Rather than these uh, mighty men going, yeah, no, that does sound like a good idea. Go, go to sleep, pretend you didn't hear it. They say, you know what? Come on, guys. Let's go get him some water. Let's do it. We're already, we're already sweating, whatever. Maybe we'll get some water, too. Let's go for it. It's how much they love their king. It's how, it's how devoted and loyal they are, willing to risk their lives to fulfill a nostalgic longing. Right, and so, and this is a lot harder than driving to Tahoe, all right? They had to leave this cave, go, tre- go blazing, or trek into the blazing Syrian sun, right? And what's crazy about this story is particularly is this well that David talks about would have been very heavily guarded. And so, it, it's, it, it's, text doesn't tell us, but we can rightfully assume there were two guys completely on high alert, either making sure that they weren't being attacked or literally defending their lives while the other one was saying, all right, hold on, I've got 30 more seconds. You, if you guys can just keep fighting. And this was not a small task. This was something that they would have risked their lives for. Uh, Haddon Robinson again says, this is the highest pitch of devotion. These men loved David, so loyal that they were willing to lay their lives down so that he could have a drink of water from a well that he longed for. And uh, as they return to David, they bring it back. You've got to imagine, you know, again, the stories in the back of their mind. Oh, David's gonna, this is going to be so cool. Wait, wait, wait till he sees what we brought him back. Not only that, let's wait till he drinks that water. That's going to be really, really cool to see. They bring it back, tell him the story, and as we already heard, David does something very unusual. He sees it, and rather than, than drinking it, he, he takes the water, overcome with emotion, and he pours it onto the ground. And we know why. The text tells us very explicitly. David was thinking, God forbid that I should do this. 
Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? I think what David was probably overcome by was he realized that these men had the highest capacity of devotion and loyalty that one human is able to show another. I think it humbled him. I think what David realized in that moment, and we see it from the text, is that he realized, you guys, I do not deserve this level of loyalty and devotion. This, this is special loyalty and devotion. And me or any other human should never be the object of this. Only God is deserving of this. And we know it's what he thought because when he pours it out, what does it say? He poured it out to the Lord. As if to say, I'm, I'm so thankful. I am so grateful. I'm so proud of the men that you are, your loyalty, your dedication, your love. The content of your character is not in question at all. You are great men. You are great friends. But I do not deserve to be on the receiving end of your best. Only God does. Always and ever. And I think from what we know about the quality of these men's character, where we might get a little offended, well, David, just take one sip at least. I think the reason they share this story is because these men go in, he's absolutely right. Our devotion belongs to God and to God alone. And that's why we're supposed to remember these men. Because I think the chronicler, what he wants to say is, we are at our collective best when we give our individual best to God and to others. That is when we thrive. When I am third in that equation and I'm constantly saying, God, what can I give to you and what you give to me? How can I give it back to other people? So three very quick takeaways for us this morning from lessons that we learned from this story. Right? This is a chronicler in, in, in Israel, exile times, speaking to his people without hope and guidance. What could it possibly mean for us today? We might be in totally different scenarios, but I think the lesson is the same. We serve a king worth fighting for. What we see with David and his men, the reason they were able to go lay their lives down willingly is because David had shown that he was willing to do the exact same thing over and over again. Did so when he fought Goliath, when he led them into military conquest. David showed, I will lay my life down for you, and it, it was reciprocated. They loved each other, and as much as they were king and servant, they were brothers at the end of the day, and they were equal when it came to laying their lives down for one another. They knew that David was a king worth fighting for. And if David was a king worth fighting for, how much more is our King Jesus worth fighting for? Because Paul, in no uncertain terms, says, if you belong to Christ, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And that price was the blood and body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that cross. And, and, and he didn't do that because of anything we have shown, like the mighty men did with David. We did not prove ourselves. All he did that for was because he loves us. We are made in his image, and he wants us to be restored back into right relationship. So yes, David is a king worth fighting for, but our King Jesus is a king who is worth fighting for because of his love and his sacrifice for us. It starts by recognizing we serve the greatest king, and he is worth fighting for. And because he is worth fighting for, and because of the sacrifice he has shown and given to us, and the love we have received from him, we, we realize that service ultimately starts with devotion. Right, if we could understand, again, all of the Game of Thrones-level political games that were happening on behind the scenes during this day, you would make our heads spin. 
And again, history has shown us we do not do well. The human heart in politics, especially when there's power to be attained, does not handle that very well. But these men were able to look past that, their differences, have a unified vision under what God called them to, and they were able to devote themselves first to God and then to David and accomplish that work. But the service did not start with just saying, I want to serve. It started with, I love my God, and I love this man that my God has called to rule us. And I think what it shows is it's the same thing with us. Sometimes we serve out of obligation, thinking that if we serve, it will make us more loved. But we don't serve to be loved. We serve because we have been loved through service, and we want to give it back. Uh, Jamie Smith, he, he writes, uh, there's a book that he's written, and this is a little bit adapted, but the, the reality is, is that we're not always going to actually love the things that we claim to worship. Sometimes it's hard for us to do it, but we will always worship the things that we love. And, and if we are able to, again, realize that we have a king worth fighting for and give our whole hearts to him, that is where service starts. Before we serve God, we have to devote ourselves to God. That's what David's mighty men did, and we have a king that is more, that is more mighty than King David. And then the last takeaway, this is my favorite one. As I said earlier, the chronicler, he could only go back in the past to say, here's what it could look like in the future. But our, future, our future for the, vision for the future today is greater than what they had because of Christ. Whereas the Israelites, um, again, they didn't necessarily see, they could get an example of what faithfulness looked like and hope that they could repeat it. Whereas the path might be a little bit unclear with Christ, our path is clear. Israelites didn't know what battles they were going to have to go into and how they were going to emerge victorious. We have a greater vision because we know that the battle is already won. We're not going to have to remember the military conquests of our heroes of old because we know that when God comes to do the redeeming work of restoring this world to himself, there won't be death. There won't be tears. All there will be is peace, love, joy, and harmony as every tribe, tongue, and nation is at the throne room worshiping God and living in eternity in that perfect love. Our vision for the future is so much greater in that we don't have to be the ones that actually achieve our own redemption and restoration. God's redemption is going to be greater than anything that we can offer him and anything that we can imagine. Our vision for the future is so much greater because we have Jesus. So whether we're in exile in Israel, a cave of Agilum, or in Grand Rapids, Michigan, our best vision for the future is ultimately very similar and the same. And that is our best way forward, brothers and sisters, begins with devotion to God. Because when we are able to devote ourselves to God, we are at, again, our collective best when we give our individual best to God and to others. And brothers and sisters, we are most unified when we all live in obedience to our shepherd, ruler, king, King Jesus. This is our way forward. This is how we have real hope in rough times. And this is how we serve our true king who is worth fighting for. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for um, your faithfulness. We thank you for the way that you fight our battles. God, and we thank you for the way that your spirit enabled um, great brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, God, now and back then to show us... Uh, God, not what, what honor and glory looks like, but what true service to a king who's worth fighting for looks like. God, what faithfulness looks like. God, I, I, my, my prayer is that as we, as we celebrate our freedoms here tomorrow in this country, God, that we'd realize that one of the greatest freedoms we have is to not completely live for ourselves, but to live wholeheartedly, loyally, in utter loving devotion to you.
God, that is our best way forward. We know it. Give us the strength to actually uh, follow you, God, and to listen to your commands. And God, as we follow you as a church, would we see uh, you emerge victorious for us, your church, and for the whole world until we wait for your second coming. In your name we pray. Amen.